The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Friday, January 31st, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg, currently polling at 12% in the morning consult national poll and third nationally in a Reuters Ipsos poll, will be able, it seems like, to make the February 19th debate. How could this be? How could you let one of the most popular Democratic candidates on stage to face questions from the other Democratic candidates without having to go through the process of raising a dollar or two from 65,000 people. That is the charge here put forward by Naomi Klein, quote, in a tweet, DNC changes debate rules so Bloomberg can buy his way in. Young Turks host Emma Vigeland writes, the DNC is changing its debate rules mid-primary. This, by the way, is before any primaries have been held. Eliminating the small donor threshold to let Bloomberg buy his way onto the stage. This is, in a word, stupid. In two words, quite stupid. So the old, better, fairer, more democratic way would be to require a multi-multi-billionaire, Pentaconta billionaire, someone worth $50 billion or more, and make him ask you or me or smarter frame, someone who actually supports him, to give him a dollar. And then, and only then, do we know that people care. It would be nice to get money out of politics. I agree with that. But apparently, those who agree with that a lot more than I do very much want to make the Pentaconta billionaire hit us all up for a dollar. That'll produce a more hygienic system. Bloomberg's money, they say, you heard them say it, is buying him a spot on the stage. No, as I've said before, it is buying him our attention. And upon securing our attention, he is making his case. In fact, none of his ads have any dishonest claims. Actually, PolitiFact, since the 2016 Democratic National Convention, has checked Bloomberg seven times, and all of his statements rate as either entirely true or mostly true. Like when he said that he lowered the number of uninsured by 40%, covering 700,000 more New Yorkers. That is true. When he said no other city in America did what New York did, reduce murders by 50%, reduce police shootings to historic low, and reduce the number of incarcerated people by 40%, that is true. When he said he increased graduation rates by 42% and reduced the racial achievement gap, also true. And this Sunday, he will be paying $10 million to air a Super Bowl commercial. I've seen the Super Bowl commercial. Maybe you have too. It is powerful. It's of a mother who lost a son to gun violence. The mother now supports Bloomberg because of his anti-gun violence initiatives. He had aspirations about going to the NFL. On a Friday morning, George was shot. George didn't survive. I just kept saying, you cannot tell me that the child that I gave birth to is no longer here. It's powerful. Because unlike other Super Bowl ads, even ads that aim for the heartstrings, this ad has a somewhat unique quality. It doesn't end in uplift. It doesn't tell you, now here's the product to buy that alleviates this problem I just laid out. Last year's Washington Post commercial, narrated by Tom Hanks, was stirring. Because knowing empowers us. Knowing helps us decide. Knowing keeps us free. And then the words democracy dies in darkness is on the screen. 
Yes, dies in darkness so long as it doesn't get suspended by an editor for tweeting true facts about a basketball hero. But you can buy the Washington Post or take this ad, also from last year, telling us veterans could Google their military occupation codes to help them with job search. No simple code can define who you are. But now it can help you search for whatever's next. But the point is, we now associate Google, a product with an uplifting emotion. Even the Trump ad that is to air during the Super Bowl does this. Under President Trump, America is stronger, safer, and more prosperous than ever before. That's associated with uplift. The Bloomberg ad dwells in sadness and doesn't really offer a solution. Calandrian Kemp will never hold her son again. But it does associate the cause of fighting gun violence with Michael Bloomberg. And yes, Calandrian Kemp is a black woman from Texas. Texas has a lot of delegates. They vote Super Tuesday. And it's more or less, it doesn't break new grounds as some amazing new political ad, but I do think it will stand out during the Super Bowl. It's true. The ad is no more insightful and no more stirring and no more convincing than a similar ad by any other candidate would be if that other candidate sat on a pile of $52 billion and already spent $275 million in ads. And all the other candidates are going through the traditional route of meeting actual voters in the actual states that actually vote early. And I can understand why it seems unfair to them to ignore the established path in favor of an aerial assault. But to say that Bloomberg is buying a vote with his factual message that he has spent time, effort, and lots of money to become a very effective counterweight to the NRA is unfair. That is a message that could and should connect with lots of voters, even if they were only exposed to it because Bloomberg alone was able to put it in front of their eyes. On the show today, we have no impeachment update. I think you know what's going to happen. Anyway... The Pentagon announces it's bringing an old weapon system back that could be something of a landmine. Yes, landmines. But first, John Favreau was a speechwriter and advisor for Barack Obama, who did not direct Iron Man. He is a co-founder of Crooked Media and one of the hosts of the Pod Save America podcast. A good listen, though not a perfect one, which you will hear. Favreau has a new series. It's season two of his series, The Wilderness. The Wilderness is a very well-done look at where the Democratic Party is for an audience who wants the answer to be winning. Okay, Charlie Sheen quotes over. Here is Jon Favreau. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying, 
unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Pod Save America is a podcast that you know. It is hosted by, among others, the crooked media head, John Favreau, former Obama speechwriter. What John's been doing the last couple election cycles is a show called The Wilderness. Now, in 2018, he took the show, which looked at all constituencies within the Democratic Party. They put the show out there, and guess what? The Democrats won big. Am I saying there was a cause and effect? Maybe. Maybe if they had <laughs> edited that interview with, uh, with, with Tom Perez a little differently, there wouldn't have been a big Democratic win. Based on that premise, don't change what's working. The Wilderness is out with a new series. What they do this time is they go region by region and talk about how the Democrats can win the White House. John Favreau is here. Thanks for coming on, John. That is such a better pitch than what I've been uh, <laughs> what I've been pitching. The, gonna, the fact that this is key to this winning. Is, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know why I didn't think of that. Thank well, you. Well, let's talk about that as a meta question. You guys are activists and at least some commentators, let's say, yeah. you know, something on, along the lines of journalism. Is there a tension there? Is their attention when you put together a show and you want to be as informative as possible, but you also have this goal. And this goal isn't necessarily simply informing the audience. It's winning an election. You know, it hasn't been as difficult as I thought it would be when we sort of got into the business. Mm-hmm. We're open about the fact that we're activists and you know what our biases are. Like when we started this, we we sort of looked at each other and we're like, everyone's going to know us as Obama people forever. You right. know what our beliefs are. You know what side of the aisle well, we come from. you hope. It's a good brand. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. like, but we're not going to be able to hide that and pretend that we've become these nonpartisan reporters who are just going to tell it like it is now. Yeah. But what we can do is promise you know that we're going to give commentary that's based in fact that we're going to give you the analysis as we know that we're going to be especially after 2016 humble in our analysis the primaries have been tough because we have all wanted to be um neutral yes or at least transparent right in what we think so neutral is not like we're not i don't think you're neutral about tulsa gabbard for right, instance. I'm not neutral about. Yes. I, I'm not neutral about Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, that's that's an exception because I think she has. Uh, I don't think she's in this for the right reasons, and I think that's fairly transparent. But when we talk about all the other candidates, we try to be honest about what strengths and weaknesses we see as people who have been on campaigns before. Yes, and I want to get to the wilderness, but since we're here, let's talk about this. Sure. If I had one critique, and I want to give you great compliments, if there is one critique, it would be that you guys will weigh in and say, rhetorically, this was successful that Buttigieg did. Rhetorically, that was a misstep that Warren did. You will say tactically, 
smart to spend your money here, a misstep to spend your money there. Where I don't see you weighing in is on the policy positions that are actually alive within the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. So you'll skewer bad Republican policy positions. But if it is on a Medicare for all and a Medicare for all who want it, I think you'll mostly talk about how to communicate the different points of view. But I don't know which of those two choices any of you three guys firmly believe is the right choice politically. I think we've done that policy by policy at times. The problem is I could tell you like if we were to start the healthcare system over from scratch. I have real forget all politics aside. I have real concerns about what the transition to a single payer system looks like from what we have right now. Yes. And I guess well I said all politics aside, all democratic primary politics aside, but politics in the sense of you need sort of buy-in from the public to do something Mm -hmm. once you're governing. Forget about elections, right? And having gone through the Affordable Care Act, uh, not only passing the Affordable Care Act, which is very hard, but the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, which, as you remember, uh, hit a few bumps. (laughs) Um, It's really hard to move the giant system of government at all, even in a small little direction, let alone something as big as that. So then let me ask you, there's another part of this uh, debate, which is the Overton window that some people, yeah. and I believe Bernie believes what he says, not because of some rebound uh, effect of what he says. He believes it because he believes it. But there are a lot of people who will at least argue, well, it doesn't matter. You have to talk about it yeah. like the way Warren and Sanders I... are talking about it to get a movement. But here's a, well, here's has good... that been overrated to some extent? No, here's a good example of that. Yeah. This gets into the wilderness. So. I do. I do four, one does. and I didn't even mean to. Yeah, uh, I did four focus groups for the wilderness, and I did four different groups of voters in Arizona, just outside of Phoenix. I talked to Romney Clinton voters, so these are you know people who have drifted from the Republican Party over to us. Yes, and they're when all, we asked them about Trump. They were scathing. Like the scathing. beginning of that uh, session was, "What do you think of Trump?" And you heard all of them lay into him, and then you say, "These are these were ever." Romney Ev- voters? Yeah, these were ever Republicans. These people were definitely voting to against To a person, Trump. they all right. voted for Romney. And then we so we talk about health care, and it was the only group that understood the Medicare for all versus public option debate because they were very engaged voters. They pay attention. The other three groups didn't really pay that much attention to politics, and they didn't yeah. even know the debate. They didn't know Medicare for all. They didn't yeah. know a public option. This group did. And they all wanted a public option. They didn't want Medicare for all. But they wanted a public option. And I was sitting there, and I'm like, the left would probably see this as, oh, fuck, a whole bunch of people don't want Medicare for all. But instead, they should be celebrating because 10 Romney voters, yeah. people who voted for Mitt Romney, are now sitting there passionate about a public option. And in that sense, the Overton window debate, is it, it works. Mm-hmm. It, it, like Bernie Sanders and a lot of progressive activists have pushed the debate to the point where there's another Democratic president who's not going to pass Medicare for all because maybe it's not possible – I think has a very good chance with Democratic majorities in the House and the Senate to pass a public option. What did anyone in any of these focus groups tell you that was eye-opening and insightful and that you've been using and citing and thinking about ever since? Overall, it's just how cynical they all are about Mm -hmm. politics and distrustful they are about our political institutions, which includes both parties and the media. Mm -hmm. And... Look, all four groups of voters are voters that Democrats need to reach in order to win. And they're all going to vote. You know, I talked to 40 people. Every single one said they're definitely going to vote in 2020. 
we need to reach these people and it's going to be very hard to reach them because they are increasingly tuning out and they're tuning out partly because they don't like Trump, but partly because neither party has delivered tangible benefits that have improved their lives. And they think that the media treats politics like a game. They think it's a bunch of people who get paid to yell at each other both in the media and in politics. And so they don't really have time for it. It depresses them. It bums them out. And so I think what Democrats are going to need to figure out is how how do we reach these people who are so sick of the system? To some extent, they're right. Those critiques are right to yeah. some extent. To, to some, some extent, extent, they're not. But every Democrat is essentially running as a version against Trump and against cynicism. That here's why we have the hope. I guess... Trump was hope only for my certain kind of person. Is that necessarily right? Is that the right way? Well, Trump when, Trump's move, which you've seen in the impeachment defense as well, is, yeah, I'm an asshole, but they're all assholes. Right. Trump's move is cynicism. That's, right. that, he's, that's what yeah, he's yeah, betting on. He fosters on. it. And the more you tune out, the more and he the dominates more it the ether. It works for him. And I think everyone else, what we have to do is not, it has to be more than a critique of Trump, more than a critique of Republican policies, but it has to be even more than a vision of progressive governance. It has to be a vision of progressive governance that is achievable. Uh-huh. And look, it could be achievable, you know, from Bernie's point of view, that would be sort of grassroots revolution and that's how we achieve it from other from elizabeth warren's point of view you know it's also movement related but she also talks about you know she spent a lot of years figuring out which regulations to change how to staff the government right that's a way to do it for other people for joe biden it might be here's how i'm going to compromise and get something done so i do think trying to give people a sense of how you're going to overcome all of the obstacles and gridlock and partisanship and bullshit in washington to achieve something is going to be really important People vote for president in a way they vote for no other office. They vote in personal ways. Very character driven. Right. So how important is the theory of the case of how they'll make change versus I just like this guy or I like this woman. I like the cut of his jib. Yeah, I think it's all of a piece, right? People take many different things into consideration and people are extremely complex, more so than the media gives them credit for, right? We put people into boxes and we say there's lanes in the primaries and all this bullshit. And I think that's not how people see it. Really, people, because different people are, you know. I guess I, I don't want to be um, vague. Yeah. I think with Bernie that people do like him or they know what he means and they see him as consistent. But unlike all the other candidates, his theory of change comes to me, seems that it comes up short, even among people who say, I really like that guy, unlike every other candidate in the field. I think that there's something very different about Bernie. There is something very different about Bernie. And I I mean, I was surprised in the Milwaukee group. These are the Trump voters, the Obama Trump voters. There were some Bernie fans in that group. And I got that when I did the wilderness in the first season, when I went outside Detroit, I talked to Obama Trump voters and there were a bunch of people said, I would have voted for Bernie if he'd won the nomination. Okay. Um, so there is something. Are about, they like former auto workers? Are they labor? Are um, they they white? Are they white? Yeah. Yeah. Non-college white people, men and women. So I think there's something different about him. I think his theory of change, oddly, is I believe his theory of change. One problem I think Obama had was in 2008, he runs this very inspiring campaign. A lot of young people come out and vote for the first time. But it was, I think people saw it still as transactional politics. Mm -hmm. I give you my vote, Barack Obama, you're inspiring, cool, and we like you. Uh, You go off to Washington and fix all the problems, and I'm going to go back to my life. Yeah. And that's not 
how it works. <laughs> In fact, that's not how it can work because the system is very fucked up. And so one leader, no matter how unifying, smart, talented, powerful, whatever, what, whatever their ideology is, no one leader can do this on their own. And you actually have to have an engaged citizen, citizenry to get anything done in this country. Yes. And I think Bernie at least recognizes that if Bernie wins the presidency, he can't go in there and deliver on all the promises he's made just by, I don't know, what? <laughs> like pushing through legislation in a in a Senate that's never going to pass all that kind of stuff? No. Or, you or need... stealing Elizabeth Warren's ideas for do it without right, Senate right. approval? <laughs> you, need, you need a sustained grassroots movement to ever have change in this country. Here's so th- this is the last thing I want to get to. On my show, I've talked to many people. I even let Sean McElwee guest host once uh, really? because I'm a generous guy. Oh my God. Yeah, so he's very smart. He is smart, and when he puts out a poll, the poll is accurate. No, although, they do. Yeah, they yes. don't shade it. It's very, yes. it's good stuff. But I think that th- so there was always this tension, and I debated it with Joy Reid, and we talked about it with guys from Five Thirty Eight. Do you need to? Uh, nominate someone who is progressive or they usually mean Bernie, maybe Warren, and therefore excite people who didn't come out? Or do you need to flip the Obama to Trump voters? And like the data was just so blindingly obvious. You shouldn't ignore anyone. But you flip the voters because the voters are voters and there's so many more of them. I hear in the wilderness, you lay out the facts. Like if someone listens to the wilderness, they will know the big thing is flipping those voters. But there is still so much... I don't know, lip service or attention given to the other side of things that, oh, yes, it's not just about uh, persuading these white Midwesterners. You have to excite people who weren't voting last time. And I wonder what the effect of that is, do you think? I hope if you listen to The Wilderness, you come away with the idea that you have to do both. Why wouldn't you do both? I am right now concerned. Do we have a candidate that can do both? I have said from the beginning, we need a candidate who can... Basically, all four of the groups of voters I talked to that are very different, who can convert those Obama-Trump voters, who can still keep those Romney-Clinton voters, and those very cynical voters who are mostly black and Latino and who voted third party or didn't vote in in, uh, 16 that I talked to in Miami, have to bring those voters out and bring new voters out. But what's the biggest group? What's bigger than the other groups? Well, I mean, there are... It's the Obama Trump voters. The Obama, but no, the Obama Trump. So there's the Obama Trump voters are about they're about seven percent of the population was Obama Trump voters, and then there no sorry they were nine percent, and then there were seven percent who uh, of the Obama voters who stayed home, and then another three percent who voted th- third party. What I would say is where I sort of disagree with some of the progressives. I think just being more progressive and more left right. doesn't necessarily get you the voters who stayed home. Right. That's where I think that's the, the other part. Is. That's the other part of their argument. We need to excite them and excitement no. equals Bernie Sanders. What I, what I think is the messages that would convert the Obama Trump voters are not that much in the, in the type of candidates are not that much different than what would bring out the people who've stayed home. Okay. But I do think. So put, give me one of those messages and put it in Amy, Pete or Joe's mouth. What would, what would they say? <laughs> I think. What is, a, what does Biden say to do that? I don't know what Biden says. <laughs> no, look, I, I think in the, we, we did this a lot in, in 2008, but I think you have to start by, you have to acknowledge the cynicism that's out there, right? Like, because it is so easy to, ju- if you just go out there and say, uh, you know, I'm for X, Y, and Z, that's not going to do it, right? Like every, anyone can go say that. I think you have to tell a story about this country and about our political system where you acknowledge um, how tough things have been and how broken the system is mm-hmm. and how it's pissed a lot of people off and how it, you can totally understand why they think that no one in Washington or in the media 
has cares much about yeah. most of this country, or at least yeah. has not gotten stuff done. And then you have to lay out sort of your vision of what you're going to do. And I think you have to, I've talked to a lot of these voters who both want to blow up the system and want people to stop fighting and get along. Yes. And, and, and they don't see them as in conflict because basically all they're saying is just get something done. Right. And so I think for a Democratic candidate, you do have to promise to upend the system to change Washington, right? But at the same time, you also have to say, I intend to be a president for anyone, no matter what you look like, where you come from, who you are, or who you voted for. Right. And that's not the same as saying, I'm going to go sit down with Mitch McConnell and we're going to hammer out a compromise. But it's saying, like, I'm going to rise above the nastiness and pettiness that we have seen in politics. I am not going to focus on the small, stupid fights that are on Twitter and cable news that dominate them. I'm going to focus on the big fights that actually matter to people, whether it's their health care, whether it's gun control, whether it's climate change. That's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to be a president for everyone. I'm going to try. I'm not going to be like them. Okay. Last question. Tell me if this is true for your life. Throughout my life, quote, this is the most important election in our lifetime, is said every single election. Is. is this more important than the last one, which first got us Donald Trump? I'm going to go. I, I, I've been saying this is the most important election in America's lifetime. Uh-huh. I think this is, I think, I truly believe, and I think it's very possible that he could win again. But I, I, I truly believe that if he wins a second term. 1860, Lincoln? No. I mean, I think Johnson we are Vermont. in, I think we are in descending into something very, very scary. Like, I think that guy with no guardrails and never having to answer to voters again, like the only thing that constrains him right now is hoping that he is a two-term president with no worry that he'll be kicked out of office. He'll do anything. Yeah. Anything. John Favreau is the host of The Wilderness, which is out with a new season, and he's from Pod Save America. Thanks a lot, John. Thanks for having me. Donald Trump is, he will tell you, a critic, an opponent of war. But he is also a huge fan of war crimes, as he tells us in so many ways, from his advocacy of torture, to his repeated threats to attack Iranian cultural sites, to his advocacy of killing the wives and children of ISIS fighters. But we're fighting a very politically correct war. Yeah. Well, we see that the other thing the is with the terrorists, you have to take out their families. When you get these terrorists, you have to take out their families. That from Fox and Friends and War Criminals. So it shouldn't be a surprise that given the opportunity to both back a horrific weapon that the world has shunned and also to stick it to the Obama administration, Trump would pretty much trip over himself detonating that tripwire. Yep. We're bringing back landmines. Secretary of Defense Mark Esper made the announcement at a Pentagon briefing. I would just say this much. Uh, landmines are one of uh, very uh, many other important tools that our commanders need to have available to them on the battlefield to uh, shape the battlefield and to protect our forces. Uh, at the end of the day, we want to make sure that we have uh, all the tools in our toolkit that are uh, legally available and effective to ensure our success and to ensure the protection of our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines. I have a hammer in my toolkit. That hammer attacks nails. I have a saw in my toolkit. That attacks wood. Some people actually have explosives in their toolkit. That attacks rock, but is done when you're done exploding. I have nothing in my toolkit that I leave behind, and years later, it attacks children. Toolkit. 
I have heard the most gung-ho soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines say they want body armor. They want better guns. They want a B-2 stealth fighter. I rarely hear, we want landmines. If only I could put a munition in the ground which tears the legs off a small child or anyone else when stepping on it. Landmines are useful, actually, in the Korean Peninsula to dissuade the standing army of North Korea from moving south. But once landmines are used, they render ground deadly for years to come. It is an admission that there is no hope for that territory. The only use of that land is henceforth to be a killing field. There are no theaters that we're engaged in other than the Korean Peninsula where that logic applies. We don't want to salt and then arm the earth in Iraq or even ring, say, Helmand province to hem the Taliban into Afghanistan. We don't want to concede that the land is lost. Landmines uh, uh, are, uh, are an important tool that our forces need to have available to them in, in order to ensure mission success and in order to reduce uh, risk to forces. That said, in everything we do, we also want to make sure that that um, uh, these instruments, in this case landmines, uh, also take into account both uh, the safety of employment and the safety to civilians and others after a conflict. And I think today... Okay, that policy that Mark Esper is talking about states that the operational use of landmines will require they have a self-deactivation or self-destruct feature. Of course, if you yourself are in the vicinity of a landmine, that self-destruct feature will also destruct you. The Pentagon actually has invested more than $100 million in the Gator Landmine Replacement Program, which aims to produce a smart landmine. Sure, people fear their smart speakers. Good luck with these smart landmines. Popular Mechanics describes the development of that system under the headline, the U.S. Army is trying to design a civilian-safe landmine, subhead, the service is trying to design a mine that doesn't kill or maim civilians, but it may have created an entirely new weapon system. I guess this is what they mean when they say creative destruction. The new system is that there will always be a human being in the loop, monitoring via a drone or on the battlefield, and essentially setting off the mines after, say, tanks have rolled through the area. Tanks? Tanks have rolled through? What is this, World War 2.0? Well, yes. A justification put forth for the new system is that the Russians and the Chinese could be threats. And if they start behaving in a threatening manner, well, mine over manner. Of course, the safety and efficacy of landmines, really of all weapon systems, has been oversold in the past. Landmines used in the first Gulf War were supposed to safely deactivate, self-deactivate, but many didn't and many more were duds. They say the extreme heat in Kuwait complicated their intended function. I guess that shouldn't be a problem in Iraq. As with so many initiatives of the Trump administration, what would be a concerning policy, even if it was undertaken by the most competent people in the world, turns into a disquieting, potentially disastrous undertaking. The military is mostly competent, but they do love things that go boom. They don't fret about costs, and by costs I mean costs in dollars or costs in the standing in the eyes of other nations, 160 of which have signed the Anti-Landmine Treaty. The point of civilian oversight of the military is to have a commander-in-chief who is acting in the best interests of the country militarily, diplomatically, and ideally, morally. With the Trump administration, all you have is a reflexive antipathy for whatever Obama did and a knee-jerk bellicosity that makes trusting their judgment impossible. 
That's it for today's show. Priscilla Alabi is the GIST's associate producer. She knows that the issue of landmines is quite a landmine, and she wants to take a howitzer or a flamethrower to it. She was afraid it would all blow up in our face. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist. He's eating lasagna. The Gist, the new landmines with a human trigger, is a lucrative business for the weapons firm that gets the contract. That is why their sales force is trying to land manned landmines. Man, did I land that? Oomper de and thanks for listening.